Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Theater Podcast. I'm your host, Alan Seals, and our guest today is Beth Malone, a Tony and Grammy Award-nominated actress who made her Broadway debut in Ring of Fire. And, of course, I love her, love her, love her from her role in Fun Home, which she was saying... led her to uh, a bunch of activism down this incredibly uh, interesting path because uh, the show uh, was 90 minutes, one act. And then she said going out on the stage door was like act two. That's what they would call it because so many people would would get uh, just share their personal stories, get very intimate and sometimes would even come out to, to Beth and to the cast. It's just this incredible experience that shows you how much theater can really affect people and, and touch people's lives. So I cannot wait to share this with you. Before we get going, as always, find me online. Leave a rating, leave a review if you haven't done that in a while. I love reading the reviews, especially in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you are listening. Find me online on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast on the Tiki Talks at theater, well, the theater podcast. I got to get my own handle right. And now everybody, please enjoy this episode with Beth Malone. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's guest is a Tony and Grammy Award-nominated actress who made her Broadway debut in Ring of Fire, but maybe best known in the Broadway scene for originating the role of Allison in Fun Home and also her roles, uh, a role, yeah, multiple roles in the production of Angels in America. Uh, past TV and film credits include Reno 911, Judging Amy, The Good Wife, Britney Runs a Marathon, and Tick, Tick, Boom. She has way more, but those are just my favorites. She played the title role in The Unsinkable Molly Brown in multiple occurrences, which now has an official cast album that could be found every Everywhere you stream your music, you can catch her now on Five Days at Memorial on Apple TV. It can also see her in the series City on Fire, which is also on Apple TV coming next year in 2023. Holy crap, Beth Malone. Welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Thank you for having me. (laughs) (laughs) No problem. So, goodness, you've got quite a a bunch of projects going on, and we're going to dive into all of this and... Unsinkable Molly Brown is is such an uh, unusual thing for me to have a cast album for something that didn't come to Broadway yet that was recorded during a pandemic. And I promise we're going to get to that. But let's go back to Colorado because I oh. want to know about, about Baby Beth, 
Where? What did Baby Beth do to get into theater? Well, I was raised in this kind of like ranch south of Castle Rock, which was a teeny town south of Denver. And we didn't have, you know, access to that kind of thing. So I actually like saw Singing in the Rain on TV and ran out to the kitchen and was like, Mom, Mom, you got to see this thing. It's this this music show is and uh she was like that's a musical I was like, oh well this is this is where i have to go to there soon <laughs> so then i just started kind of like getting my hands on cast albums and things like that i had a record player in my room and i would just like look at the you know but there was a dinner theater this was back in the days of like dinner theater mm-hmm. and there was a place it was about you know like a half hour from our house called the country dinner playhouse it was a red barn like a red, it was like super 70s cheese, but it was near and dear to my heart. And everybody in the Denver area who came up, like um, Amy Adams worked there, um, Annalie Ashford worked there. Like there's a bunch of people who like went on to have careers who uh, Lee Horsley started there and wow. uh, Mary Jo Catlett. You know, there was a bunch of Denver people who ended up going off and having you know, careers outside of the Denver area that started at this little tiny dinner theater where you would like go through the buffet and you would get your little like fish in a, the, there was like a <laughs> brick of fish that you would slice yourself a, a, a square of, and that was the fish. And, you know, it was not known for the culinary experience at all. Um, but then, you know, I got to see all kinds of shows there. And then when I start, when I got my driver's license at 16, I became a hostess there, like filling the salt and pepper shakers and like filling the waters. So I could just be in the building and watch rehearsals and kind of sneak around and see the shows 18 times. And, you know, I, they, they did a Vita. And I remember just like, I would just like, if you're looking for me, I was watching a Vita a hundred times, you know, um, and that's how I got into it because, um, you know, it was no Broadway close to Castle Rock. So that's what I did. There's a Denver Center out there now, um, but I guess it didn't exist back. They weren't, a, they weren't a house that would like, they were a producing, they were not a producing house. They would house, like my mom took me to see um, Annie, the tour, when it came through there. And I wanted to hitchhike to New York afterwards. I was like insane afterwards my poor mother and she she i i saw like um arsenic and old lace with maureen um stapleton in denver and i just Mm -hmm. i loved it i just would be like in a trance afterwards like i i you know just was it was enormously powerful experiences when i would get to go see the big shows at the denver center and my mom would take me you know, whenever she could or would, you know, take me to see, make sure I saw things. And then in high school, I I saw cats, like the tour of cats came in and I met Rum Tum Tugger who flirted with me. And then that was disconcerting. But then like, (laughs) yeah, all those things. (laughs) Well, yeah. Everyone who's in cats, that's a separate conversation because that, that show is just creepy and weird in, in and of itself. So. Yes, and if you're on tour as Rum Tum Tugger and you're in Denver and some high school girl comes to the stage door, you're going to see like yeah, how far you can take it probably. I mean, <laughs> I can't really blame him, whoever he is. <laughs> I did Arsenic and Old Lace, God, a, a decade ago at a, at a summer stock. It was in, uh, up in, in, in Michigan. So I, yeah, I have fond memories of that show too, yeah. 
What town in Michigan? Coldwater, Michigan, the Tibbetts, Tibbetts Theater. Oh my gosh, you did arsenic and oil lace in mm-hmm. summer, Michigan. That sounds yeah. like heaven. You know. it, it was fun. It was fun because we we had um we had cat there was no cast housing, so local people from the town would would offer up extra bedrooms, and I and we ended up staying. Uh, somebody else in the cast was staying with somebody who had a boat, so we would just like whenever we didn't have shows or during the day or on our day off, we literally would just like drive out on the Finger Lakes and hang out in Michigan. That that was great. Oh, awesome! I have a friend who has a cabin up there, and we've been invited a few times, and uh, I love it. It's beautiful up there. Mm-hmm. So then I know I know that you had mentioned in stuff that I was reading, and I don't know how up-to-date or accurate Wikipedia is in general because it's Wikipedia, but we'll talk about your one-woman shows too that you talk about sort of your relationship with your parents and your dad specifically. And like your one-woman show too is not a typical cliche coming out story. It's a coming-of-age story and you identify as uh, as queer individual. And like growing up though... Were you, did you feel sort of out of place at this time? And and I don't actually know what the relationship with your parents was. I was just reading that there is something there. Yeah, so I I grew up, um, you know, a queer kid in the middle of a rural situation, which is why, like, as an adult who has sort of um, taken my art into like activism, that the, that that community is is uh, where I sort of try to put my focus a lot of time, um, but. For when I when I came out as an adult, like my parents disowned me for for quite a few years. So I was um, I was on my own for a good part of my 20s. Um, And I did a lot of things in those years, in those years where I was out of communication with my parents where like most millennials now are still like living at home (laughs) with their parents at the age where I was just like um, orphaned, basically. But I I. you know, I, I met Rochelle during that time. That's my wife. We bought a house. I got my master's degree, like all these huge, like life things happened. We got married, you know, during that time. Um, and it was just, it was really sad. Like it, it was sad at first and then it got increasingly sad. It was really, really, as, as it went on and on and on and on, I just thought it just got worse and worse. Um, instead of better, you know, I thought maybe it'll just like, I'll just get used to it and it won't be such a heartbreak, but it, the, the heartbreak sort of intensified the longer it went. And then once one Christmas, my brother's wife, Cindy Malone stepped up and she said, I'm having Christmas at our house. Beth and Shelly are coming. You can come or not come. And they came. And so that was the time. And it was really, my, my mom would still meet me and, and, and things like that. Like she would still meet me at the mall and, you know, we would exchange a Christmas present in the parking lot. And, you know, it was just really grim, um, not to overstate it, but it was, it was grim. Um, and then my dad showed up at this place at my, my brother's house and my sister-in-law's house. And, um, you know, he, he, he had to drink like a fifth of whiskey in order to talk to me. But that by the end of the night, he, he said, you know, slurred sort of like there ain't but one of you. That's what he said. And then the next day it was like, it never happened. Like the seven years that he didn't speak to me. It's like we went to breakfast and with Shelly and it was an awkward breakfast. And then after that, we just started seeing each other, you know, randomly. And, and at that point, I think we were living in LA. So it wasn't, it wasn't every, every day we saw them, but you know, we would 
I could call the house and they would pick up and it was just like a slow reintroduction of me as an adult because I had done so many different things since the last time, you know, we had known each other. It was just really an odd little wrinkle in time with my parents. Was it a, a, a religious reason or, or just an, a lack of awareness reason? My, um, my parents are full on like Trumpers. They're, they're Fox News watching Trumpers. And I was raised in a rural situation. My dad is from Boston. So he's like a fake cowboy. He, <laughs> how, he decided to move to Colorado and become a cowboy. You know, he had horses in Massachusetts, but I'm like, what kind of cowboy lives in Massachusetts? And so he decided to move to Colorado and like pursue the whole thing and then like created this whole persona. So I was raised like my dad was a cowboy, but he's really like a kid from Boston. Um, but you know, they come with a whole bunch of bigotry, you know, Irish guys of a certain age just have a whole litany of, I mean, they're just sitting ducks for this Fox news, those people, because they just, they want someone to tell them the things that they were raised on and Fox news will do that. So, um, you know, it, it, it's like he's been kidnapped. I mean, I don't feel like he was a bad person my whole life growing up. And I don't think he's a bad person now. It's really hard to say like a person versus their beliefs and actions, uh, whether whether you're good or bad. But, um, uh, you know, it's a very complicated, very complicated situation because now we hang out with them because during the pandemic, we moved back to Colorado so that we could be close to them because he's really failing now. But he's he's got horrible, horrible ideals it's a horrible set of ideals that he just spits back out from whatever the TV is telling him. And mm-hmm. you just have to, in order to deal with him, I just have to pretend like he's a crazy person and be like, mm-hmm, okay. Yeah. No. You know, okay, like, dad. Okay. That's okay. Yeah. scary. It's, it's confirmation bias. It, it, it's really scary how it, mob mentality. Actually, I, I was up late last night. I couldn't sleep. And I was watching, I watched all three episodes back to back to back of um, Trainwreck about uh, the the Woodstock 99 festival. Yeah, I want to watch that. Oh my God. Just act, when they're treated like animals, you start defending yourself like animals. And it's like it, around you. Anyway, I could digress on all of this. It was just, yeah. th- that documentary is a fascinating case study on sociology. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So you should watch that. We are these advanced creatures. We are animals. Mm -hmm. The the line between the show I'm on five days at Memorial. It's an eight. It's an eight episode uh, limited series on Apple TV right now. Five days at Memorial. And it takes place over five days. Um, When Katrina hit and this hospital lost power and people were trapped. And what happens in five days? short days well yeah it's like when you don't have the basic things that you take for granted like clean drinking water and a place to take a poo without that integrating in, into your drinking water yeah there was some lady some lady who was like i had to go home because i had like sores and blisters all over my mouth because she got uh what, what is it um giardia uh, not, dysentery uh, tren- trench mouth <gasps> who even knows what trench mouth is oh my god We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode.
So back to theater. Uh, yeah, no, you think, man, I wish I was at Woodstock and then you hear trench mouth. <laughs> well, Woodstock 99 was the problem. Oh, the other Woodstock was totally fine. Oh, okay, wow. Yeah, no, yeah, Woodstock 60, whatever it was, 63? Don't quote mm. me on that. Um, that was all like, calm, peace and love and, and hippie, everyone going out there and like no violence. People brought babies out there. It was great. And then 99 was literally just to make a buttload of money and they cut corners everywhere and everyone was treated like, like shit that they literally ended up drinking, literally. Anyway, ew, ew, back ew. to queer activism. That's way more fun. Hey, so, queer. Um, yeah. Fun Home and... and that show, you you were on a long journey with that show and got Tony nominated, Tony and Grammy non- nominated. I can't speak today. Tony and Grammy nominated for that show. But then you were you were saying, and I've read this from so many other people too, that it became therapy for a lot of people to go and see this show. And like they would come up to you and tell you stories at the stage door. Yeah, it was really intense. We would say like the stage door was act two of that show because um, act one was the show. It didn't have an intermission and it was 90 minutes. So you do that. Then you go to the stage door and you just listen. You just listen and support and uh, see them. You know, that's important. It's like, I see you. Yes, I do. And you are legitimate. You're valid. You're a valid human being. Your story is, um, I hear you. And, you know, the, the New York Times at the time was like trying to get me to do like a comment, commentary, comment on a story of like uh, gayness is like yesterday's news. And we've, we're like in a post, we're in a post gay society where it's like not even a big thing deal to be gay anymore. And, you know, like. Wait, how long ago was this? This was in 2015. It was New York times. And, and there was a particular um, reporter whose, whose idea for a story was like how how it was uh, not an issue anymore, and it was it was completely safe, and and it wasn't even you know taboo or anything you know or, or dangerous. I, and anyway, she wanted me to weigh in on this, and I I just said I can't, I won't, because you should come. A, you should leave New York sometime, and B, you should come to the stage door, and and. Just listen to the people who came from Kansas, who came from, although Kansas, yay, Kansas, um, but, you know, who came from Texas, who came from Louisiana, who came from, you know, um, Utah, all the way here to see this show because these pilgrimages to, like, the source, the, the, someone feeding you something that validates your existence, that's what they came for. So that, you know, it's dangerous to be gay in a lot of places still. It's, it's not, well, like what, it's not what cute. you were just saying about, about your parents and, and that whole literal almost half of the nation that still believes that today, as we're recording this, that being gay or being black or being a not straight white person is just wrong. And there's, yeah. there's, no, there's no foundation for that other than that's what my parents taught me, so it's got to be true. No, I know. There's a lot of fear. But th- there was that moment when we were up, when Fun Home was happening, it was like uh, gay, gay marriage passed, um, you know, universal health care passed while we were up. Mm-hmm. Uh, President Obama was in the White House. It was a different world, and we were 
riding this wave of love and acceptance and progressive ideology and all of this, you know, um, taking the culture forward and expanding and finally embracing diversity and all of this, this stuff that just has had this massive, horrific uh, backlash uh, afterwards. But at the time, we were sort of... We were just like in euphoria going, this is finally here. The day we've fought for and the, our, our predecessors, you know, we're standing on the shoulders of these people who at the Stonewall riot stood up and said, hell no, you know, we are these, we are the lineage of this. And now it's like, we are just suffering the, the pendulum swinging the other way and just like knocking the shit out mm. of us. And, um, you know, it will swing back again. And you have to believe that during the time when we were enjoying all of that uh, safety and acceptance, it seems so crazy to say like that was some kind of uh, anomaly, but it's true. Um, those people were seething with anger and raging and gathering their forces and gathering their strength. And they're coming after us. They are not done. Mm-hmm. This uh, the abortion ban is the first thing. The next thing is my marriage. It's gonna. It's there. It's coming. They're coming after me, and and not you, but like us, the mm-hmm. queers. They're not done. So, um, you know, it's just like uh, that fun home era was a beautiful time in history, and we really got lulled into a sense of complacency. I think I felt like safe and. So what do you do now to, to stay active in, in the space of like raising awareness and staying and pushing, pushing the envelope forward? Well, I, uh, you know, I do it a lot of the time just through um, my shows. Like I do these solo shows out and about and I make a point just to talk about my family to as many houses full of people as I can. Uh, because it's important for them to see an individual that they've come to care about and like. And then say, you know, I want to talk to you about my family because that's important. Um, my wife and my life and, and how, I mean, we live in Lauren Boebert land. She's my representative. Lauren Boebert is my representative because mm-hmm. I live on the Western slope. She's in, I'm in her district. So um, I was out of town shooting this show a lot this year. Um, and seeing Colorado from a distance is always different than being in it. It's like when you travel to Europe and you see America from someone else's perspective. It's like, wow, we look like a bunch of fat idiots. uh, Idiots. We look like a bunch (laughs) of idiots. They they do like to say, you know, you you start telling people you're Canadian because you just don't want to take shit in the bars anymore. You're like, I'm from Canada. Yeah, good old Canada. You know. No, I, was, I ran into that like um, when I was traveling a couple of years ago before the pandemic. Yeah, it was just what I was afraid. I was afraid to travel once Trump got elected. I really was because they assumed that, again, all Americans have to feel that way. And I'm like, no, 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 not at all. Like that's not how the other half of us thinks, right? And it's, it's, yeah. it speaks to the pendulum that you said, you know, keeps going back and forth. And we are going to swing back and forth. And that's just the nature of our culture, I guess, for now, unfortunately. So it's going to take a couple generations of, I think, everybody growing up with the internet to realize yeah. how connected we all are. 
and how not different we all are fundamentally. I hope that that's a good thing. Yeah. That's the one good thing about growing up with the internet. I just, the other, there's some other bad things like trying to talk to somebody who's grown up with the internet. But (laughs) other than that, like their beliefs hopefully will be more global. There will be a globalization of, of people's like core beliefs. Yeah. Well, it's, it's just finding people, I guess, finding your tribe a lot more easily. And and I talk to people um, who are basically like my age. I'm I'm about to be 42. So like my age, a little bit older. So I was one of the very few years that grew up analog and became digital in college. So I know what it's like to have a modem and then I didn't broadband until my freshman year of college. And so... I know both worlds. I remember what it's like. I only had a cell phone in the case of emergencies in high school because it was so expensive to make a call. I just think like there's so much that we can teach that generation about uh, awareness. Like look up at an elevator, see who's around you. Look up and make eye contact. I want to say one thing about millennials, if you can. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I don't want people saying certain and important anymore. There, I'm done. That's all I got. <laughs> well, that is a very important yeah. thing to talk about. It's important. About. When That's you're important. on an airplane and your flight attendant says, I'm going to give you an important announcement. I'm like, oh God, oh God, we're done. We're doing <laughs> We're down. We're, we're so screwed. We're so screwed. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. There, there's, there's little things. Spell check. Oh, who was I talking to the other day? That it was a mom of four kids, two of which are in high school, who was saying that spelling is not emphasized much anymore in the curriculum because it doesn't need to be. Everyone's got spell check in their pocket. Oi, oi, oi. Okay. Anyway, I mean, you know, I'm the last generation that learned cursive. Did you learn cursive? Yes, yes. I knew cursive. Nobody even teaches anymore. It's like oldie mm-hmm. tiny. It's like learning Roman numerals or, or what, you know what I mean? It's like learning Latin. They stopped teaching yeah. Latin. I was like, no, I don't use it. Cursive. When's the last time a letter that was written in cursive by someone's, remember those letters you'd get from your aunt as a child? And yeah. you're like, oh, look at this. Well, now, now that's why uh, calligraphy, calligraphists, callig- calligraphographers are so... <laughs> Uh, important and expensive for wedding invites, right? Because, yeah, because no one knows how to calligraphy anymore. I'm just making up all sorts of words. Calligraphy. It's important. It's, it's, impor- it's, t- it's important to learn how to calligraphy. It's important. Um, it's important. Unsinkable Motley Brown. What's your oh, story? God. <laughs> Let's just start leaving out consonants. Oh, um, my. Oh, my. Uh, it reminds me of a South Park episode where they, where they visited the planetarium. Do you remember that? Do you ever watch South Park? <laughs> yes, because it takes place in Colorado. I didn't see the planetarium. Yeah. Why? Yeah, there's one guy, he just couldn't... He just couldn't say tease. So he's like, all right, everyone come visit the planetarium. <laughs> it was just, I don't remember why, but now God. whenever I see the word planetarium, yeah. my friends and I are always like, planetarium? Planetarium. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking about Brown. Okay. Tell me the journey of this story, of this show, because it, it it's been around in multiple incarnations in a while, and then it was going to come to Broadway, and then it wasn't, and then now in the middle of a pandemic, this this cast recording that just was released uh, pretty recently before we're recording this. Um, 
what was recorded, I believe, what, December, what was it? December 21st, 2021 was, was, was it was recorded. So it was like right yeah, as we, we were getting. It. it seems like yeah. it's recently. Yeah. Within the last six months, we came in and we, we sang it, which is weird because we hadn't done the show in so long. We had to relearn it. You know, there was rehearsals involved in this cast album, which was bizarre and masks and social distancing and we hadn't seen each other for a long time you know by the time we went in we had it scheduled and then canceled and then we had it scheduled and then canceled and then we had it scheduled and we were like oh, and it was right in the middle of another surge so we mm -hmm. were like oh god it's gonna go down the crapper again and then we were like let's just do it let's just throw caution to the wind and we'll all sit sing in our little booths with our little you know it was so um demoralizing but still we did it and um you know the result is we had this nice documentation of the the, the production that wasn't you know we we got up we ran for like two three weeks and then one day instead of going to work we cleaned out our dressing rooms and that was it never to be seen again until you know rehearsal for this cast album which was it was necessary actually to have a little bit of closure with each other so we got mm -hmm. to at least have like that moment of closure finally because it was really abrupt as everyone's was but some people got to come back and have like a redux but we did not um we had abrupt interrupt us and it was never to be picked up again so that um nice call back to the latin there abrupt us interrupt yeah, interrupt us, us um <laughs> skittus interrupt us <laughs> we um you know it was really just such a it was a beautiful production oh my god the design was gorgeous and the cast was awesome and we were in this lovely little theater and it was an off-broadway production it was not a Broadway production. We were hoping it would transfer. All those things have evaporated. I just think there's just so many shows queued up now because there were things that were supposed to go in last season and now they have been bumped and those things have been bumped, bumped, bumped. It's like mm -hmm. this horrible domino effect of things that could have almost gotten in that are just never going to get in now. And I think that's where Molly Brown sits. Um, unless someone miraculously comes in and it's like, you know, this is, this is what we need right now, but I don't know. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, is there... Is is there any sort of um, personal personal attack? I mean, you're the you're the lead, right? You're the title the title role. You're Molly Brown in the show Molly Brown. So, and reviews were like of your performances were positive, and everything is is going great. And then like the show itself just gets put on halt. Is that a personal? Did you take that personally, or is that just like, well, that's showbiz, kid? And just move well, on to the next I, Apple TV series. Me personally, I, I took it personally that we that we had to go um, off Broadway and not on Broadway. Personally, I, I took that personally because um, you know if I was a bigger name on Broadway, we would have I would have been able to carry a show in. But as Beanie Felder show just found out, you know sometimes that's not the best thing for everybody. Um, but <laughs> um, I don't know. I just think. It, it did what it was supposed to do, you know? Sometimes I, I just have to think, like, God, it did what it was supposed to do. It was nice. It did what it was supposed to do. I'm not sure there's an audience for this particular script in, the, in today's climate. I'm not positive that it was, like, relevant enough to have a Broadway revival. Um, I, it might have been because she is a really powerful political activist, you know, a female political activist in a time where women couldn't even vote. And she got a ton of stuff done in her life. 
She died at 60 in New York City studying acting. There's so many crazy hmm. facts about Molly Brown. She was at the Barbizon Hotel studying acting in New York City at the age of 60. She had a stroke and died. She, wow. um, she started the ASPCA. Um, she, you know, she started this thing in Denver called the Dumb Friends League, which is still in ex- existence today. It, it, it rescues dogs and cats. And um, from that, it was the first of its kind in the country. There were no like, you know, there was dog yeah. catchers. And then there, but this is, this is like um, an organization that helps homeless pets. Molly Brown started that. Um, she separated the juvenile court system from the adult court system. If you were 14 and you robbed something, you would go to prison huh. back in her time. And she was like, this is not a good place for young people. So, um, cause they just end up being more criminalized in incarceration and then come out way, way worse than when they went in. Yeah. And so she petitioned and had to go through a bunch of things to get her voice heard, to get that legislation passed. Actually, she ran for Congress twice. You know, she couldn't even vote. Um, there was a ton of things. She, she, she's a huge, hugely active person and she was Catholic. That's the other thing. She was really Catholic. So she had all of that um, Catholic church money, but she got this giant cathedral built in Denver. She she donated a ton of money to get this giant cathedral built in Denver, which I find that kind of interesting that she was a religious person who was also like a socialist and a compassionate, authentically compassionate for the, the less thans, the people who had less. You know, I just don't find that to be the case with highly... Um, Christian folks in today's climate. I, I don't find the compassion thing to be um, connected to their belief systems anymore, which is why you, you can you can vote for a person like Trump and call it religion. Mm-hmm. You know, because otherwise there's there's a giant disconnect here for for the, the teachings of of the person that is the, the religion is based on. We're going to take a short break. Stay tuned for more of the episode. Let's do as I say, not as I do. And yeah, I grew up in in North Carolina in a very Southern Baptist, every corner sort of town. Mm. And and, and it was just, it was immediate. And that turned me off so much. to organize religion at the time, just because I felt judged. And I was like, wait, this is supposed to be the place where I'm accepted the most, yet I feel the most ostracized. And then I think there's probably parallel to your love for the theater. And I gravitated towards musical theater and and show choir because those are where the misfits went. Those are where the people who didn't fit anywhere else all came together. Oh, and thank God for theater in high school. (laughs) If it wasn't for theater in high school, I don't know what people do now. They don't have, they have bad mental health. Kids are struggling with mental health issues because they don't have that catch-all for us. Imagine what the state of your brain would have been if you didn't have that to go to. Well, that yeah, that that's like, do I do I rob a store? Do I start smoking something to try to fit in with that group of friends? And like, you, you could have gone God. any direction, right? There's a point in your life where you could easily go kind of like kind of any direction, and that's the point where theater steps in and says, "Yeah, come here, children, come over here. Let's think about like 
what this writer was trying to say. That's how would how would you play this part? Let's see, you know, like let's see how you can walk and talk on stage and be in front of other human beings. You know, that's a huge, huge thing when you're that age. Yeah, theater theater oh. is the the serotonin drug dealer. <laughs> you want to hit you want to you want a hit of the happy juice all right go step in the spotlight applause that's what applause <laughs> does to your brain it messes you up pretty good too i know i know i love it and yeah it's especially for people who don't have a, a happy childhood or a happy home or they're not good in school like there are so many reasons why you why you can turn to theater whether it is the writing or costume design like there's so much to do where you're not on stage right like stage management if you like just the organization you'd like to be around it's it's just the group of like-minded people who like to create and imagine and pretend in a way that that you just, you can't get at, at other jobs. I, I'm sorry. It's just, it's not mm-hmm. there. You've got to express that creativity. And I think kind of going back a little bit to the herd mentality of like, we are animals. I think deep down, right? We need to belong. We need to be in a herd. We need to feel accepted. And and so it's it's really hard to to be a lone wolf and I guess I keep that up consistently because like, look at what happened to everybody during the pandemic. People who are living by themselves started to Passed legit go, away. go, you go know, nuts. like a lot of people just died. They gave up. Yeah. It was really a, a, a interesting, bad social experience uh, experiment. But, um, you know, it, it brings the truth out too. It's like, we need each other. We need each other. Yeah. And that that group of people, when when you're sweeping the stage and someone's in the light booth and someone is like, um, you know, on headset right, uh, that group of people, then you get to be, it doesn't matter who you are in it. It really doesn't matter if you're the one in the spotlight or running the spotlight. You just, oh God, it was the best. The best <laughs> theater in you miss, school. Yeah. Do you miss that? Do you, do you miss the... I mean, I guess that's a stupid question because, of course, you're going to go back to theater if you have a chance. But like, you're doing so much TV and film now. But do you, like, what do you miss? I, I guess really what do you miss the it. most. The, the most about being on stage. I love rehearsals. I love rehearsals. I love playing. I'm directing something right now, so I get to go into rehearsals next week with a group of people. I'm directing Hurricane Diane, written by Lisa Crone's wife, Madeline George, who is nice. um, like I think one of the main. Um, script supervisors, something like that on Only Murders in the Building right now. I keep seeing her name go by and that's a TV show you should watch if you haven't watched I it. I love it. Love it on Hulu. Um, Madeline George, she wrote this killer play called Hurricane Diane and it's an environmental um, comedy horror show. Um, it's it's all of these things. It's about Dionysus coming back to Earth and having to like get some acolytes so that she can get her power back because she's afraid we're going to screw up the earth so much that there will be no one to worship her. So she has returned <laughs> to get, you know, so she moves into this cul-de-sac and she becomes like a permaculture um, landscape architect who seduces all the women in this cul-de-sac. And it is freaking hilarious. And then also terrifying. It's so oddly specific. It's so oddly specific. And yet it's everyone's story. So that I can't wait. I just cast it with people, local people here. I'm in Colorado. Uh, I just finished shooting in New York. I came home and um, I started 
you know, holding auditions at this little theater in Carbonell, Colorado, at the Thunder River Theater Company, where I'm going to do Hurricane Diane in a very <laughs> small town in Colorado, which I am so excited about. I mean, that's, that's part of the activism. Fun. It's like, I'm just going to bring this like queer ass environmental piece right into the middle of like downtown Carbondale, Colorado. Um, you know, on a small scale, we do what we can. <laughs> It's, it's important. I think you you touched on something that's really important to to point out is that in order to move forward with everybody, like it, with it not being a big deal to have any sexual preference anymore, part of what we need to see represented in mainstream media is uh, our, our, our same-sex couples that and interracial couples, for that matter, that aren't a plot point. It just is. Right. Hello. It, yeah. That is... That is- that is it. I love what you just said because that is like the, that is the the drum I have been beating for years. It's like, can it just not? Can we just have like a gay person instead of like that big straight white guy? Can't you just hire a smoking hot dyke, please? And just like, don't change a fucking line. Sorry, but just put somebody. And more interesting in that part, please. Suddenly, your really mediocre show is really interesting. Like for me, I like I watch Stranger Things and I see like mm-hmm. the the big like sheriff guy. What's his name? Uh, like I always w- imagine w- him. W- Willie Sher- Sheriff Willie? No, Will Will. I'm no, the main Ryder. guy. A, um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Winona Ryder Hop, love Hopper, interest. Hopper, Hopper, yeah, Hopper, Hopper. I just think, what if Hopper was just like a big smoking hot dyke? What if what if Hopper was played by Becca Blackwell? I'd watch that. <laughs> <laughs> and and Winona Ryder's still the love interest. Yes. 100%. Like, and you just don't address it. You just be like, and, and. Yeah. Yeah. Next. Yeah, I, I, Next. The first Moving time on. I, the first time I noticed that was, um, I forget the name of the movie. It was with Nick Offerman. It was a little indie movie about four or five years ago with Nick Offerman and his daughter, like the, the wife's dead. He's widowed. His daughter is like, it's a coming of age little story subplot for his daughter who just happens to have a girlfriend and it's never mentioned of like, oh, you're not dating a boy or whatever the case is. And and I was always waiting for that like twist of like, oh, that's because you're gay. But that's because mm-hmm. that's what we've been trained to watch never for, or trained to see. And it never happened. And at the end, I was like, that was the coolest thing I've ever watched. That was so right. nice. That was so nice. That's part of like, you know, the old, the old movie, um, Bound. Yeah. Bound is a great film. It's like a, it's a, it's a heist movie. 100%. It's it, by the, um, same people who did met, uh, the matrix. The, and, the, the Wachowskis. Yeah. The Wachowskis made this film right before the matrix. I think making this is what got them that, that deal to direct that. But it's a beautiful love story. And, you know, the fact that it's two women is, is sort of just not a plot point, which is great. Um, well, I'm the writing Wachowski's musical. Are, the Wachowski, ooh, I'm going to come back to that. The Wachowskis yeah. are two people who have both had, independently had sex changes. I, or, I don't know yeah, if they actually they're transitioned. Both transitioned. Yeah, they yeah. did. I think, I think they both medically transitioned. I'm not sure about the medical side of it, but they both, yeah. you know, are trans women. Both of them are Yeah, now. they both identify as female now. Yeah. So you're writing a musical. What can you tell us about it? I am writing a musical. Um, with Stars a podcaster. Who talks over... <laughs> I, no. Oh my God. I There is a podcaster in it. That's so funny. Yes. You better um, call yes. me. <laughs> well... She's a female identifying human. Oh, okay, Sorry, okay. but 
Um, otherwise, you'd be you'd be great at it. You'd be great in it for a couple parts. But um, yeah, it's called Starstruck, and Emily Sayers of the Indigo Girls is writing the music, and I am co-writing the book with my friend Marianne Stratton, and it is a Cyrano adaptation. Um, a, a love story that takes place in Idaho in a dark sky reserve. So it's an environmentalist love story um, with Indigo Girls music. And it is it's beautiful. So look for that because it's going to jump off of the page any minute now into like a place where people are standing up and singing. Mm, I want to yeah. come see that reading. So let's let's connect. Let's connect. Let's let's, let's connect. Okay. All right. So three closing questions. I ask everyone to to wrap up the episodes. The first one, very simply, is just what motivates you. What motivates me is hope. I'm motivated by hope. I feel like it's contagious, and if you lose hope, there's no there's no after. You have to keep assuming that what you do is going to make a difference and proceed. That's what motivates me. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? I would say get to the point where you're comfortable being yourself sooner. Um, I know it's like a hard thing to figure out who yourself is, but I feel like for me, there was a lot of years I'd spent trying to look outside and trying to like be the thing that was castable instead of like being... Like as soon as I started telling my own truth and being my own authentic self, like the floodgates opened and my career just went whoosh. And I was like, well, Hmm. there you go. Because I was warned away from being myself from a lot of people who thought they were helping me. So I felt like I I had a lot of like external fears stuck on top of me where I'm not generally a fearful person, but I felt like I was extraordinarily cautious early in my career when I maybe, you know, didn't need to be. So it's a different world also. So, but I would say, you know, figure out who you are and then lean into that. Embrace what makes you different. Yes. They all say okay. that, you know, everybody says that, but it is true. <laughs> so final question. This is the hardest one. If you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you could see it as many times as you want, what would you see? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's a horrible question. Oh, <laughs> uh, Gosh. Oh, Sunday in the Park with George, probably. With Annalie? Yeah. Yes, with Annalie Ashford. I loved the original cast so much, too. I loved, you know, Mandy Patinkin in that. And Mm -hmm. uh, I I love any version of Sunday in the Park with George I can get. Um, Yeah, that writing, it just, it's sort of like a peony, you know, those flowers that just keep opening and opening and opening Mm -hmm. and opening. You think it's done opening and it's like, I'm just getting started. That's what, um, that's what sometimes writing does. You know, you could just sort of listen to it over and over and over again and hear something new every time because you're different. So you bring some different way of listening to it. I don't know how he did what he did. I wanted to work with him before he died so bad and I didn't, I couldn't, I was in the same room with him like three times and I couldn't even go up and talk to him. Really? Oh, Ugh, I was wow. just like, I know I'm going to say something stupid, so I'd rather just not have that happen. Well, that's and that's your advice to young, your younger self. Go talk to Sondheim, damn it. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah. ugh, just like a little bit younger, like three years ago. <laughs> three years ago. <laughs> All right, where can we find you online? Um, at the Beth Malone on Instagram, uh, at Hebe Fluff on Twitter. What? And that's about he be, it. Hebe he Fluff? Hebe Fluff. 
H-E-E-B-Y-F-L-U-F-F at Hebe Fluff. I know. I just thought it would be like covertly on Twitter at first when I first joined. It was stupid. I should have just been myself. <laughs> see. All right. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you so much. You can get more of me and other great episodes like this at thetheaterpodcast.com on the web. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at theater underscore podcast on TikTok at the theater podcast. This has been edited by Well-Rounded Hoodlum Productions, music by Jukebox the Ghost. And of course, Beth, thank you so much for being here. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.